0: Oh, right So those of us who were here last week remember all those little maps and diagrams where we talked about how the Word of God has come to us uh, in different places over millennia, and that we haven't been encountering that word in different ways. And even our New Testament is especially dramatic, where you can see there in Jerusalem and Galilee, where the Jesus movement gets started, and when war comes, everyone must flee. And the word goes out in every direction. As the disciples, the apostles, the early church finds its feet in places like Syria, Egypt, India, as far as they could go, all the way to Ireland in a surprisingly early time. So the readings today come from a different place than our Bible. One of the things um, that we need to remember is that our Bible isn't a book. It looks like a book to us, but it is, in fact, a library. It is filled with books, books of Genesis, books of the book of Psalms, the book of Matthew, and stories about the early church, which is our acts and letters from Paul as he navigates those first communities. So books were written by people of faith who, from ancient times, have recorded their experiences and understandings of who is God. For Christians, it was the early bishops and the early leaders of the church who came together and selected from among this treasure trove of scrolls. A scroll had a certain length, it was called a book. A treasure trove of writings from people who had come to the faith generations before and selected the ones that they believed were best reflective of what God is doing in the world. And they came together to be our holy scriptures. But there, they do not stand alone. Anybody who has read Peter and then read Jude knows that some of the very same stuff is in those two books. Where did that come from? When we read the stories of the Gospels from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we recognize similar stories. They must have been told throughout the region and recorded a little differently in each place. And we reach even farther back and we discover that doesn't just happen in our New Testament alone, but as far back as these ancient Judean texts, these ancient Hebrew texts, they were already telling the story of the lost sheep in a different way. So we are going to be working with the writings of the writings of the writings because they are the rich milieu in which Jesus and the people of their time were immersed. So as we poke around, um, I want to revisit the midrash that we read in the beginning, and I do have a quote here from it that it's nice and succinct. It says, Consider the king who has lost a gold coin or a precious pearl in his house. May he not find it by the light of a wick worth no more than a penny. So this ancient story gets echoed in our New Testament because Jesus tells this story in a different way than it has been heard before. It would have shocked his hearers to hear his take on it. His hearers were Pharisees, men who were very certain that their way of understanding the law was the right way. I also want us to tell again the story of the lost coin, which is our focus underneath all the extra pieces. What woman, the story says, told by Jesus in the book of Luke, if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp, And sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Ultimately, immediately we see the differences, right? But there are are big differences. there, uh, there are similarities to both stories is about, are about what is lost and what is not in the rightful position. For the king, finding the gold coin is like finding an insight into Torah, the Hebrew Bible. As a king, knowing Torah and being wise is part of his job. Solomon is the best example of that. But the king, to be a good king, was expected to know, understand, and carry out the will of God. Both the king and the woman who lost her coin are at home. Both light lamps to find the lost coins. The woman sweeps the house. The king might have done the same. Perhaps we a hand over the floor by the table where the coins were kept, or into the nooks of the purse or chest where they were laid down. Both have to find the coin more to gain it, not just the coin back, but the illumination of something even more important. There's no reason to think that this simple story was not known to Jesus or to the Pharisees who is talking to them and telling the story of the woman in the coin. In fact, to get through to Pharisees in general, one had to know Torah and the writings very well, and Jesus did. That is part of what makes this story so scandalizing. And here are where the differences are and the series of shocks that the Pharisees would have experienced in hearing it. First, he insults them by coming this close to implying that the Pharisees are like a woman. No Pharisee wanted to be like a woman at this time in antiquity. So the story kind of starts out like, okay, ladies, listen, which of you, if you lost a coin, it's not that dramatic, but it is inferred, and some might take the bait. Then, wow, the next thing you know, Jesus is telling a familiar story about a king, but instead, it's about a plain village woman on par with a shepherd from the story we just heard a minute ago about the shepherd who lost his sheep. So some of the details have to change because we're talking about a village woman now and not a king. So she's not wealthy. So her coin is not a gold coin. It's silver, tiny, smaller than a dime, equivalent to a day's wage for a laborer. And yet it is precious to her. She has a set of ten and one is lost. There is incompleteness She takes up the broom and she sweeps the house looking for it. And when she finds it, she calls all her female friends, the friends as gendered female in this story, and neighbors and even the angels join in the rejoicing. If I was a Pharisee, I imagine sitting there with my mouth gaped open, like my brain chunking away. You know how your computer, when it runs out of RAM, it just, that like short-term memory, like goes into... Yeah, I'm pretty sure there were a few Pharisees in that state of paralysis trying to parse, wait, wait, what did he say? What did he say? So if Jesus spoke plainly, maybe he'd say something like this. He has simultaneously elevated and demoted the role of the king in the story. The king is socially demoted. He is now a peasant woman. Ah. He's nowhere near the social class or importance of the king much farther from power and much farther from God, or so the logic of the Pharisees would go. Kings are close to God, peasant women, not so much. Yet, despite the logic there, somehow Jesus has given this woman an incomprehensible promotion. It was as if this was a play. If this was a play, he would have cast the role of God as a village woman. God is like a woman. God is like a peasant woman. God is like a peasant woman who sweeps floors. God is like a peasant woman who lost something and had to sweep the greasy floor to find it. God cares about finding a worthless coin only a laborer would care about. God cares about peasants and greasy laborers. God talks to sinners and eats with them. As usual, Jesus has turned the world inside out. What is first is apparently last. And what is last is first of all. The king, who would have been an esteemed part of God's kingdom from an earthly perspective, is even more an underling. Jesus' retelling becomes a woman who plays the part of God. A woman who sweeps the house for a worthless coin. In the retelling we learn a little bit about more God about God and a lot more about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom includes even the unclean peasants, even the people you cannot or do not keep the law with. God as a woman, together with the angels. Okay? so not only is the woman rejoicing, the peasant woman, but all the angels rejoice with her in the finding of the coin. When all things are returned to the whole, the lost ones are gathered back up. This is the kingdom of God. So this is really bad news for the Pharisees because they think they are first. They think the kingdom of God is small and includes just mostly them. And so you can imagine... The shock. So, there's also questions. If they're not supposed to be first, what on earth are they supposed to be doing? How many of us fall into this trap? Oh, we're Christians. We're supposed to be first. until so we put ourselves forward well meaningly all the time, right? Well, what if we're supposed to be last? What if the last is first? This is one of my complaints about the Left Behind series. Like... If the last is first, then it is the Christians who stay behind to battle the forces of darkness on behalf of the innocent. Not them like the Pharisees who are raptured off to safety while everybody else is in terrible trauma. Who, who thought that up? I, I don't think that would make it into a parable from Jesus. So, in looking through the story of the lost coin and the striking features of the story in the everyday setting Jesus places it in, everyday setting, this would be very like a very regular house of the time, three rooms, a packed dirt floor, or possibly a floor laid thick with stones with small cracks in it, and you can imagine how well those cracks would have been for hiding places for these tiny, tiny coins. This is a family home, the center of the woman's hearth. Women would gather in this room. This is where women would do domestic work and also visit together. This means that there would be children in this room, running in and out, the children that were hers and the children that were her nieces and nephews and in-laws' kids and neighbors' kids, scrambling around, begging for raisins and olives and running around imperiling the big jar of olive oil and threatening the dishes. No wonder the coin got lost. There would be chickens, there would be goats, especially maybe a sick goat or an orphaned kid. There might be a sheep. There would be insects to sweep out the door with a broom right after you swept out the rowdy eight-year-olds who were supposed to be down by the lower hill helping with the flocks. This woman might have an apron full of greens from the garden or the byway. She might have a bowl of dough in the back ready to get placed into the communal oven. She is a woman presiding over what we call home. She is ground zero of the village community. Holy ground zero. This is holy ground. Home is sacred. Home is the center of birth and death and everything in between. This story made me think of how disconnected we get in reading the Bible, which comes to us as words on the page, how disconnected we are from the real deal of daily life that this woman would have been in the midst of, this woman who plays the part of God, this woman who makes the ground holy by sweeping every inch of the floor, holding up the light to find what has been lost. There's just something sacred about home. Preparing this sermon, I recalled one of my earliest memories. When we were living in Toronto, and I was maybe three, I was very young, I remember the day that I could, was tall enough to look over the kitchen table without being on my tiptoes. And what a world that opened up. You could see everything on the top. I remember that my mother was f- friends with a lady who had boys, we were girls in our family, and one was younger than me, and this younger boy had a thing about the garbage truck. And anytime he heard the garbage truck, he would basically freak out. And his toddler way, he would scramble to the front window to look out and watch what the garbage truck was doing, how it came down the road. It was super garbage truck excitement. So as an adult, when I recalled that, I found it really charming. Um, as a child, I was a little less than impressed. I also remember our home in Phoenix, Arizona. I was in elementary school when we lived here, and there was this huge saguaro cactus in the front yard. And it was hard to not simply be in awe of it, as well as to stay well away from it. It was indeed prickly. We moved a number of times, but there were constants that made it into home for me. My mother's shortbread cookies, for example. Made in the proper Scottish way, no cheating on the butter. (laughs) Home is a sacred place. Home is a safe place thinking of shortbread and all the Scottish things my mother brought to us uh, as we were growing up in her years, I wandered over to the Scottish Book Trust website, and there were stories there shared by children about home, what home was to them. So there was Rebecca, and she's 11. She breaks, she's very methodical, breaks home down into several categories. Family, pets. She says, home is special to me. I spend most of my life there, which I thought was really cute. It is calm, and peaceful, and warm, and cozy. There's my mom and dad, and my annoying little brother, Liam. When he is around, it is chaotic, madness, and mess. But when he is not around in all capitals, it is calm, peaceful, and relaxing. I have four fish. You can sit and watch them do their silly things, like getting themselves stuck behind the filter, or when they try to eat each other. That's pretty funny the lost fish. You have to find those too. Then there's Sophia. She focused exclusively on her pets. I've got pet guinea pigs, she says. They sometimes bite, but it's all okay. Chelsea is soft and Brooklyn is fluffy. I buy them popcorn. I love them so much like they love me. Then there's Jacob. Jacob is a poet. Home isn't just about building A building you sleep and eat in, he says. Home is far more than that. It is where my family feed me, love me, and care for me. When I walk in and open my door, I touch the handle to open the door, and it's warm, and I know my mom was opening the door. As I walk in and I smell the food, I also know my mom is in the house, and that's what makes me happy. Mom can spend her time with me, and I can spend my time with her. Almost all the children talk about their bedrooms, how cozy their rooms are, and their beds are comfortable and warm and safe. Their homes are a safe, certain, loving center of the world. Home is a place where we get to be loved for who we are, even if we are annoying like Liam, where we rest our head, even our friends, as the rest of them. Doesn't he look comfortable there? and not to be outdone, the cats and the dogs together. (laughs) We all need that place to grow, to know love. The holy ground of home is an essential good thing in life. (laughs) We get the place that is our beginning. We get that place right off. And then it is the place of new beginnings when we grow up and it's our turn to make a home. At least that's how it's supposed to go. So I want to interject a little bit about our Tuesday ministries. On Tuesdays, Peace House prepares a meal for anyone who can come. And many of our guests are in the middle of some of the worst experiences of their lives. Some are homeless. They arrive with no shoes or with inadequate shoes. Some are intoxicated. Some are just broke. Others come in solidarity to share community. I try to say hello to everyone at least once. We serve all ages, children, pregnant mothers, the elderly, many young men. And I want us to think for just a moment about what home has meant to us. How it has been the sacred ground of our lives, our childhood homes, our first home out of the nest, our home we shared with friends or spouses or children, or just the way we like it. Many of our guests on Tuesdays do not have this holy ground. They have no room to call their own. They do not sleep where it is safe. It used to be that homelessness came with all kinds of brokenness, but for too many, you don't even need that anymore. In our world right now, if we were farmers, our crop would be poverty. Consider for a minute what a home is. Is it a window to see out? A division between you and the cold? Is that too much to hope for? A place to sit and play cards and watch TV? Quite a few of our guests talk about the dream they have of having a garden and growing vegetables herbs we take these things for granted in our own homes in our own sacred safe spaces things others just don't have like a sofa to crash on because you watched too many episodes of Game of Thrones and you're too lazy to get up and go to bed instead of sleeping on the sofa because somebody has graciously let you today we have dishes towels a shower That is luxury. Home is where we are safe and protected and where we raise our children. It is where there is a neighborhood and a neighborhood school for our children and a future. In the parable of the lost coin, the story tells us that God enters into everyday life and rejoices even with the angels at this most basic place we call home, where when it is dark, we light a lamp, where we are looking for loose change and we have to move the dog off the sofa so we can get behind the cushions and grab the quarters that fell down back there. This is sacred. It doesn't have to be Grand. God is like a woman who lost a coin and swept her home to find it and rejoiced when it was found. This woman of our ancient story who stoked fires and shooed children and fed orphaned goats, who held a home together whose hearth was holy ground. There was one last story that we read this morning, the midrash of when God tested Moses seeing Moses out tending Jethro's flock, seeing uh, lamb scampered off, and that Moses followed that lamb to a shelter under a rock. And when he saw that the lamb was drinking from a pool there, Moses said, I did not know that you ran away because you were thirsty. You must be tired. And he hoists the lamb on his shoulders and walks back. And the Holy One says, if you can care like that, For a flock of sheep belonging to mortal men, I need you to care for the flock of Israel, which is mine. A little while later in the book of Exodus, Moses will find himself standing in awe in front of a burning bush, hearing the voice of God tell him, Take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. The story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin are twinned in the book of Luke. Jesus tells them one right after the other. A group of Pharisees who think poor people ought to move along and stop causing trouble. Jesus sets that idea on its head. Poor people, Jesus said, are the whole point. The lost and the poor are of special concern to God. God raises up those who help the poor. God reveals the sacredness in the homes of the humble. At the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. And then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. I invite you to deepen your commitment with our Tuesday ministries if you are not already involved, to ask me about it or Lee about it or Ken Gudger about it, or Nikki about it. We are going to need to do some shifting around. It's gonna cost a little more money. We could use some help with that too. As we look at the strategic plan of our community, Ashland and Oregon, Rogue Valley, we know that there are many people working on different ideas for how to help people in need. I'd like us to be in the middle of that conversation as we have always been here at Ashland Methodist. That is our legacy, our tradition, that's what we do. So, I invite you to answer and ask the questions needed, that we can live our faith, that we can be the ones to say, oh, I did not know you were thirsty. That we can be like the woman, a model, For the kingdom of God, thanks be to God.